Tonight I want to continue the series of talks I'm doing on that sutta that I handed out to you last week, the Dasadama Sutta, Reflections on the Ten Dhammas. And you don't have to have it out in front of you um, if you don't have it with you, because I probably won't get very far tonight either. So <laughs> we'll see how far I get. If you remember last time I spoke, I did the first two, which were I'm no longer living according to worldly aims and values. And my very life is sustained through the gifts of others. I actually think those two were quite beautiful ones to begin the retreat with as reflections on simplicity and renunciation and the values of retreat and also generosity and gratitude. Gets a little stickier from here on in in the sutta in case you don't remember the, the, um, the reflections they actually begin to ask us to really do something, change ourselves and reflect on quite uh, deep and meaningful aspects of our experience and practice. So the third of these reflections that I'll begin with tonight is, I should strive to abandon my former habits. (laughs) Now, it seems a little pejorative, doesn't it? It's kind of an assumption that all of our former habits were bad ones that... (laughs) We should give up. Um, and truthfully, you know, we, most of us do have a lot of bad habits, and we don't tend to think of the things that we do that are wholesome or skillful as being habits, but they really are. We have a lot of good habits as well. So I don't think that that translation is that helpful for us. And so I looked up a couple of other translations of this same line, and I think they really point us in the right direction. One was, I must now behave in a different manner. And the second one was, my behavior should be different than from that of householders. So I think that's giving us a sense of what this reflection is about. It's really very similar to that first reflection where we're reorienting to the renunciate life. As I said in my last talk, that being here on retreat in this way, even though we're not ordaining or taking on robes, there's a way in which we really are taking up the renunciate life, the life of, um, as the Buddha often talked about, the homeless ones, where we've left our home and our life as lay people and we're living in a different way, living in a very simple way, a reflective way, practicing quite intensively. So that's the direction of this uh, third reflection, It's about giving up the habits, especially the bad or the dukkha-causing habits of our worldly life, our addictions, our indulgences, our distractions, and our self-centeredness. These are the kinds of things that this reflection is pointing us to look at and how those habits take us away from the ability to be present, the ability to be content in the present moment the ability to be here and commit ourselves fully to the life of a practitioner on a long retreat. So I'll look at this, um, these tendencies, and particularly the area of habits and addictions. So what is a habit? We're full of so many of them. In some ways you could see our lives as progressions of acting out of habits because in some way they're kind of an extension of our conditioning when we're unmindful. This is what the dictionary says. A habit is a recurrent, often unconscious pattern of behavior that is acquired through frequent repetition. 
And another definition is an established disposition of mind or character. So the first one is really talking about behavior that we do, discrete behaviors. And the other one, seeing how habits actually form character. And you can have a certain type of, of, of character developed out of your habits, greedy character or greedy habits or acquisitive or, or renunciate habits. So they, they really go together. One of the authors I, I looked to in um, talking about habits was uh, Dr. Shapiro, who wrote a book on healing. And he just extended this definition of habits by, in this way. He said, Any pattern of thought or action repeated many times results in a habit with a corresponding neurosignature or brain groove The brain is composed of approximately 100 billion cells called neurons. As a a brain groove is a series of interconnected neurons that carry the thought patterns of a particular habit. Attention feeds the habit. When we give our attention to a habit, we activate the brain groove, releasing the thoughts, desires, and actions that are related to this habit. And so when you look at a habit in this way, in the way it actually shifts the neurons or creates pathways in our brain, you can see how habits become almost, as it were, hardwired, why they become so hard to break. There's actually a cellular response to the repetitive behavior that comprises a habit. So I'm not an expert in this field at all, and just browsing around a little, you can see lots of literature on this because it's an issue for many of us, habits that that we want to, that causes problems that we'd like to work with. So there's lots of literature out there. I'm just trying to look at it more from a meditative point of view and how it applies to us here in our practice. Having the precepts there as a guideline, again, we can reorient to what's a value to us, what's important, what's a useful moral guideline. And it's the same with these. It's kind of a reorienting that we can just look at and see where we perhaps might need to make adjustments if that would be helpful for us. So there's a lot in this sutra, and I don't think I'll... I I definitely don't intend to go through it all tonight, and I'll just see how many I cover, because some of them have more detail than others, but I might make it a beginning of a series of at least two talks, maybe three. So the first one is, I am no longer living according to worldly aims and values. This is a common theme in the suttas, in the teachings of the Buddha that were written down and collected um, 2,000 years ago. He he spoke them uh, and they were kept... Um, through the oral tradition for about 500 years and then were written down. Um, And this refrain of renunciation, of leaving the home life for the homeless life, turning away from the values of the world is a very common theme in all of his teachings because most of the time he was talking to renunciates, to monks and nuns who had given up their lay life, their life as householders, and become celibate monks and nuns. So often as lay people, we can find that some of these teachings don't seem to really apply to us. 
because we're living an engaged life in relationship with family and, and partners and children. But here on retreat, even in a temporary way, we are, as I've already said, renunciates. We've taken up celibacy. We've become homeless. We've just got our little room here at Spirit Rock, which is not very elaborate. Um, no distractions in this. So there is a way in which the sutta now applies to us. And in the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, Guy mentioned this sutta last night. It's the sutta that really describes our practice here. The translation in English is the four foundations of mindfulness. It's a description of the different areas in which we can pay attention that can lead to understanding, to insight and liberation. One of the lines in the very beginning is it's describing the attitude that a bhikkhu should take as he or she begins this practice is having put away grief and covetousness for the world. So it's this kind of thing of just disengaging from the world and that attitude we can have of worry and desire. But I always think as I read that in the first paragraph or so, if I could do that, I wouldn't need to practice the rest of the sutta. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? To actually have that sense of freedom where I'm not always attached and grieving or wanting about the state of the world. But there's a common refrain where the Buddha is just directing us to reorient ourselves from the common values of householder life, of lay life, to this life of the renunciate. William Wordsworth, that wonderful English poet, talked a little bit about this. He said, as part of a poem, the world is too much with us late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers really talking about how through this obsession with things, with getting and spending, we expend all of our energy and it's not available to us for what's truly important or really what might bring us actual happiness and satisfaction. So putting aside, I'm no longer living according to worldly aims and values. To actually start to look at this, we need to know what are our worldly aims and values? What is it that we usually live our lives by? What, what are the things we get caught up in that take us away from our spiritual practice or a sense of contentment or satisfaction in just being with what we have and being who we are? So we need to look for ourselves and for each of us it will be different what these values are. And for some of us, we may have already let go of a number of these. Many of us here have been on a Dharma path for a, many years and live a life that has a degree of simplicity, has aspects of service in it. But for all of us, as householders, as lay people, it's inevitable that some of these worldly aims and values are still present for us. I know they are for me, and it's something that I'm always needing to look at. So what do we give up when we come on retreat? Well, of course, many things. You know, we give up our morning coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> we give up going to movies. We give up choosing what restaurant to go and eat at. You know, do I feel like Thai or Mexican? None of that. You know, it's really what's put out on the table. Your own bed, for many people that's a big renunciation. Your own bed, your own pillow that's so comfortable and you've gotten just as you like it. You give up your cell phone. 
you know, that umbilical cord that many people cannot live without now, of attachment to being always in contact. I think one of the things we're very grateful for, we didn't realize it at the time, because I don't think cell phones were so ubiquitous, but there's no cell phone reception here at Spirit Rock, so it's kind of a, an automatic renunciation. And it's just as well. Can you imagine if everyone could whip out their cell phone and get me out of here, you know, <laughs> come pick me up. I always remember seeing this cartoon, another one of this whole series that the New Yorker seems to come up with where there are people in meditation and they're always in a very austere environment and they're robed, so they're just kind of these anonymous triangles. But someone's got the cell phone to their ear and they're whispering into it, nothing's happening yet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just glad you can't get your cell phone out because probably some of you might have been saying something like that today. It's not happening yet. So as well as the things of our lives that we look, we look to for comfort, for distraction, that what the Buddha is really talking about here, though, are aims and values, more um, ideas, things that we orient our lives around, goals or directions. What are they? What do you find uh, you spend your time trying to acquire or to be so that you find some degree of satisfaction or some place in the world or some recognition from others. And what's important here, some of them may already be quite wholesome and quite beneficial for your life and bring you a great deal of happiness. But of course, what's important to look for here is the ones that may get in the way of you fully committing to being here and practicing in the way we do in our very simple way. So some of us get obsessed by status, you know, who we are and the recognition that we get for the things that we do, or the comforts that we've brought into our lives of just having things just so, um, the way we like them. And we can spend a lot of time doing that. And, you know, I know I do the same thing even when I come on retreat. My room gets arranged so it's just so, and I try to bring some things to make it a little comfortable, the things that I like. Um, we all do that, but it's really to look and see where it gets too much or out of balance. We're obsessed often about our looks, about our bodies, our clothes, you know, and what they say about us. All the different possessions that we might have, cars and houses and toys, endless toys that we can want to acquire. Or about our successes. How are we seen in the work world or whatever field that we're um, relating in? Sometimes we can just get obsessed with being busy. I remember seeing an article, was it in the New Yorker? It was some magazine about a woman uh, very articulately talking about this obsession with busyness, how whenever you say to someone, you know, how are you? They go, oh, busy. I'm very busy. And it's kind of like this sense of importance of being busy. And if you, you know, call up someone and they say, oh, I'm just dawdling around. You're not very important. You know, you have things to do. It's just this value we have in this culture of being busy all the time. And on retreat, it's not what we're aiming for. If you noticed, it's not a sense of rushing around. Being famous. This culture is obsessed with fame. You know, what people will do to get on television these days. It's, it's kind of scary, isn't it? That what they'll do to themselves and 
put up with and the embarrassments they'll undertake just to have that moment of fame that's so fleeting. It's, it's really kind of interesting. So this is just a, an invitation to look for yourself at, you know, are there any of these values bringing themselves into your life here on retreat in a way that's not so helpful, in a way that's not actually going to support you just being here in the simplicity of the retreat. So a lot of this talk will just be an invitation to reflection, not any answers or guidelines. The Buddha often spoke about what he called the eight worldly conditions that are always flowing for us, always with us in one form or another. Gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow, praise and blame. And he said, we're always obsessed with getting the nice ones and avoiding the unpleasant ones. And just if you start to pay attention to this, can see how much of our life is spent in this struggle of wanting the praise and wanting the good fortune, wanting the joy, and not wanting the difficult ones or the negative ones. Ajahn Chah, that wonderful teacher I think Guy mentioned last night also, uh, died about 10 or 15 years ago now, um, a Thai meditation master, said true success is not paying any attention to any of these. That getting the good ones isn't ultimately going to bring you any more happiness than being lost in the difficult ones. But true happiness, true success, is not being motivated or affected by these at all. Knowing that they'll come and they'll go. These worldly values of gain and loss and fame and disrepute, praise and blame, it's one thing you learn as a teacher. You know, you can't please everyone and some, someone will like you for something and others will disagree and it's just it's part of the cycle or the practice. Anytime you speak, that that might happen. And so the practice is just to acknowledge that they're there and not to be so caught up in pushing away the difficult ones, holding on to the pleasant ones. It's really important, though, as we start this examination of our lives, of our values, that we don't just exchange one set of values for another. Because it can be very easy to begin to acquire a set of spiritual values that we hold on in the same way we do our worldly values, where we're acquiring teachings, or even, you know, how long I can sit for, certain experiences that we can get invested in having and, and being seen to have had. This uh, Trumpa Rinpoche called this spiritual materialism, where we just take those worldly values and bring them into our spiritual life and can get just as caught up in the wanting and the becoming in our spiritual life. So again, to be aware of that. You know, it's always interesting, and I, I, I've, I've had this thought, so I presume other people had, have it, you know, what will others think of me when I get enlightened? You know, it's like, if only I could get enlightened, and it's kind of missing the point that, you know, there is no I when you get enlightened. You just, that becomes irrelevant. But from this side, it really looks like there's something to get, and that I'll be different, and my problems will be solved when I get enlightened, and I change, and I become recognized for my wisdom and my... You know, clear seeing. 
it's, it's, it's very tempting. It's understandable that we do this, but we really have to be clear that this is kind of missing the boat a little. One of the values that can be really difficult to give up when we come on retreat is being in control. Being able to determine what we do and when, as I said already, what we eat and when, you know, how things go in our lives. We spend a lot of our energy in our worldly life manipulating our experience so that it becomes as pleasant as it can be for us. And here on retreat, we have to give up a lot of that. We really have to practice taking what's offered. From the very beginning, when you come in and you get assigned a room, we have to take what's given. There's, you know, it's not like, can I upgrade? You know, where's the room with the view? Or, you know, I don't like this hotel. Can I? This is it. The room we are offered is what we have to accept. And so there's just a degree of acceptance that's really important, that we're not in control of that. Following the schedule. Again, I know where you're going to be at 4.30 tomorrow. You know, it's not, not going to change from here on in. It's, it's day after day. It's the same schedule. Um, so that sense of surrendering. As I said earlier, the people we're with, this is it. You know, we're pretty much stuck with this is, this is our group that we have. And I'd, I'm not meaning to say that in any kind of negative way. <laughs> it's a beautiful group that we have, but this is the group that we have, whatever way it is. And, you know, some days will all seem like Davis, and other days, you know, it won't be so benevolent because our moods will change. But there's just a degree of acceptance that this is the Sangha that we have. This is the group that we're practicing with. It can actually be a relief if you give yourself up to this as a practice, to actually not have to be making all those decisions all the time. You know, have you ever been with a group of friends where you start saying, where do you want to eat? I don't mind. Where do you want to eat? I don't mind. Where, you know, and then you start going through, no, I don't want that. No, and it's like, okay, <laughs> by the time you get to the restaurant, it's exhausting. Here it's very simple. Three meals a day, the food that's on the table, to just take what's offered and really make that a practice. And not having to cook or shop. For, that, for me, that's one of the great joys of being on retreat. And every time I finish being on retreat or even teaching a retreat, and there's that first day at home and you kind of look around and go, well, who's cooking, you know? Where's the food? I'm kind of at 6 o'clock. I'm ready for tea. It's, it's always a shock. So really to enjoy, in the giving up of control, being taken care of. And they kind of go hand in hand to see the value of that. Some people find their happiness or their obsession around the possessions that they have. This can really be a big value of what do I have, what do I own, what do I need to have, what's the latest thing. I remember seeing an ad just the other day where this man has his face kind of pressed against the window and the caption is, yesterday you didn't even know it existed, today you can't live without it. You know, isn't it? Advertising does that where it just makes everything seem so necessary so enticing. And for most of us, we live very fortunate lives, and we have a lot. We're very blessed living in the West, in the, in the culture that we do. Um, so much is, is given to us, for most of us. 
I remember reading and looking at that book, came out a few years ago called Material World. Remember that one? It was a, a coffee table kind of a photo book of different families in different cultures. They took one family from all these different cultures all around the world, from Japan and Bhutan and countries in Africa and Europe and Bosnia and, and the States, and took everything out of the people's houses and put them in front of the house and took a photo of these people and their possessions. And for America, they chose a family, I think it was in Texas or the Midwest somewhere, very typical family, parents, two kids, a dog, and they just had so much stuff, you know, television and the minivan and the truck and the stereos and whatever. I can't, you couldn't even look at all the things that were there. And juxtaposed was often the picture of a family from Bhutan who had, you know, their few pots and their religious objects and a little hut in the background. And it was just so striking, the difference. But the people from Bhutan looked just as happy, if not more so, than the people with all that stuff. So it's really a value that is not one, you know, when we look at it closely, that's not going to bring us that much happiness to acquire all this stuff. It's, it's one of the great things about coming on retreat or traveling in Asia. I'm, I'm sure many of you have done. I did for a few years with just a backpack. You, know, you just get used to this is your life in this backpack. It's got everything you need to, for any experience because you don't have anything else. There's no choice. And it's just so simple. Actually, um, Guy and I met in England. I had been backpacking and living in Asia for, for a couple of years almost. And then I went to England, which is, as we often like to say, our favorite third world country, because it also has a very simple life. And we met there uh, at a retreat center and started, um, founded a meditation community in the country in England and lived a relatively simple life. You know, we lived in a community for two and a half years where we just had a bedroom. And then we moved into this little cottage um, a couple of miles away where um, anyone who was over six foot tall couldn't stand up in our living room because the living room ceiling was six foot tall and Joseph Goldstein came to visit us and had to kind of hunch down because he's six foot four. So it was a very small little place. And when we finally left there, we, we lived in England for about five years, came to the States. We sent five boxes over from England and two backpacks and that's what we arrived with after, you know, living together for five years in England. And now it's about 15 years later, and we have a three-bedroom house, and it's full of stuff. And I can't tell you how many times guys walked around going, what is all this junk? Why can't we get rid of this junk? It's, it's precious stuff. You know, it's so hard to let go of. And, you know, this... Every now and then we go into a frenzy of cleaning out and going to the Goodwill or wherever it needs to go, and it just comes back in. It, it's just, that's what happens. And that's why it's so good to have these times of being on retreat, where you really see this simple room and a suitcase or two that you brought. You have everything you need for this time. So you can really test this. You know, what do we need to be happy, to be content it is very much a renunciate life here that we're leading. The, the Buddha spoke often about what he called the four requisites that monks and nuns should make do with. 
And this is all that they were meant to have or need to practice and to live. And they're very basic. It's food, clothing, and for monks and nuns, it's just their simple robes, which are basically a big sheet folded up, food, clothing, um, shelter, and medicine. And that's basically it. There's this wonderful little paragraph from the Diginikaya. And how is a monk content? Just as a bird, wherever it goes, flies with its wings as its only burden, so too is he content with a set of robes to provide for his body and arms food to provide for his hunger. Wherever he goes, he takes only his barest necessities along. This is how a monk is content. And it's a wonderful image. I mean, monks are very uh, self-sufficient. I mean, when they travel, actually I shouldn't say, (laughs) they do sometimes travel like that in Asia, but Ajahn Jumnian comes here. Has anyone seen Ajahn Jumnian's luggage? I don't know, he brings a lot of tchotchkes with him. In essence, a monk is just meant to have his three robes and the bowl and a parasol. That's the basics. And food, you know, one of the basics, the requisites is food, but there's a different attitude that the Buddha asked his monks to take about food. So every time the monks are um, part of, offered food formally, they usually will do a chant before they take their meal about the food they've just been given. And it says in essence this, not, that we'll take this food not playfully, not for intoxication, not for putting on weight, not for beautification, but simply for the survival and continuance of this body, for ending its afflictions, for the support of the holy life, thinking, thus will I destroy old feelings of hunger and not create new feelings from overeating. I will maintain myself, be blameless, and live in comfort. Isn't that a very different relationship to food than a lot of people have? Uh, there's such an obsession around food. If you read food magazines or dining reviews where there's this sort of exquisite depictions of the food and the nuances of the food and how it's served and what's the latest fad and this is new and that's old and this is in and that's out and this was good and that was bad, just really an over-obsession with food. And here in San Francisco, the Bay Area, it really is the food capital. You know, people just love to eat out and talk about food and uh, go to restaurants. And I enjoy food. I, I love to cook and I love to eat. But it's it really to see it in this balance, that this is not the way to happiness. Tastes are so ephemeral. How is that going to bring lasting happiness. And so here in retreat, it can be a really interesting place to practice with our food and with our eating, to eat just the right amount and not to make a big trip about the food. Sometimes we can feel very self-conscious taking food in front of other people. Am I taking too much? Am I taking too little? You know, am I spilling? And all of that, that sense of self-consciousness that can come in the food line. Not necessary, really to just stay in touch with what's true for you about what you need to eat, but to bring awareness to that. Because there is always a temptation to take too much, especially if the food is good, if the food is like lunch was today. I mean, wasn't that a delight of the senses, all those different colors and tastes and textures? It was just a beautiful meal. So enjoy the food, 
but use the food as practice. So as you're going through the dining, the food line, to notice the responses that you're having to the food, to be aware of the sights and the smells and the textures of the food. And the, the great advice is always to stop one mouthful before you feel full. And just that sense of being able to say, that's enough. And to see the effect that food has on, on your practice, to see what that might be. For, I know for me on retreat, I usually just try to take the right amount of food um, so that you know I have enough to eat, but I don't have to go back for seconds. But the thing that always gets me is when they serve pizza, because two slices seems too many, so I'll go with my one slice. But I always think I need more, but I can't enjoy that one slice because I'm worried and thinking that there won't be any left by the time. So, you know, you're eating and eating and eating, and you're not in- it's better to eat the one slice and enjoy it than to have this looking, oh, because I'm a slow eater on retreat, so it's, it's just frustrating. So to really have this sense of whatever's in your plate, to enjoy that. And, you know, it might not be quite enough that day, but there'll always be more. There'll always be more later that day or the next day, to really play a little with that sense of of neediness around food. Not to make a big judgment about this, really to honor your own needs and and feelings of well-being on retreat. I'm not making a recommendation for starving or doing anything really uh, severe, but just a recognition of the importance of seeing the impact our food has on us. I mentioned this morning that some people might be interested in taking the eight precepts. And as he pointed out, the, the big um, separation point or the practice of renunciation in the eight precepts is the one about not taking food after the midday meal. This can be a great support for practice uh, for many reasons. It just takes away all of that time that is spent in the meal and going down to the meal and digesting the meal and cleaning up after the meal and so there's more time for practice. can make the body feel a lot lighter. People often actually find they have more energy with eight precepts. But it's not right for everyone. It's not, you know, the hallmark of serious practice. So again, you can try it on. I think we'll do perhaps the eight precepts tomorrow morning and if you wish to try it, please feel free, but know that at any time you can just renounce the last three precepts and go back to the five precepts on the retreat. It's not something you have to kind of stick with if it doesn't work for you. Many people have dietary needs where it's just not reasonable or rational to take up eight precepts, but it is a practice that can be worth trying. So you might explore for yourself what are the things that are impacting you on retreat that you're bringing in for your worldly life. Really looking at those and seeing what supports you being here and what actually gets in the way, brings contraction or resistance or judgment or a sense of efforting or striving that's not so helpful to your time here on retreat. And of course there are many, many helpful values that we'll talk about endlessly Um, that you can both notice as already present in your experience and the noticing, the very acknowledgement of them can help them to be maintained, to flourish, to grow. And sometimes it's actually cultivating them, doing things deliberately to bring them 
alive in your practice. The Brahma Viharas is one of the clear and obvious ways we do that. But qualities or values like contentment, just being satisfied with things as they are, not needing them to be different. Renunciation that I've talked about, that sense of not needing more, of just being okay, living a simple life, living the life of renunciation. Surrender, giving up some of this sense of being in control and doing and being. Patience, great quality to cultivate on retreat. Just the willingness to be present, even when things are difficult, to stay with your experience. Generosity and selflessness, kindness and acceptance, those beautiful qualities that just soften the heart towards our own experience and towards others. And a big quality that I found very helpful on retreat not complaining. And by that I mean mainly inwardly. I, I had a retreat um, last, not this fall, but the fall before, at the Forest Refuge, which is this wonderful center that, right next to IMS. I spoke about IMS last night. It's a sort of long-term practice center, um, almost like a self-retreat kind of center. But I was having some difficulty in my practice for various reasons. And so a lot of hindrances were coming up and fueling a lot of negativity. And I just saw it coming out in this complaining mind, which would always go, why isn't it like this? Why do they do that? Why isn't there more of this? Why isn't there less of that? You know, that just incessant nagging kind of complaining. And I really realized this was very unskillful and painful just to always be looking for what was wrong in my situation. And so I took up this vow, this practice of not complaining. And every time I notice the mind start to go, yeah, 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 I just say, no, not going to do it. And it was interesting to see what a shift that made in my mind state of not indulging in that negativity of, you know, and it would be about the littlest things, the most trivial things that, you know, you'd pick on to complain about. But it made a difference. You just take the energy away from that kind of value. So not complaining is helpful. This is from the Dhammapada, which is a collection of uh, beautiful verses from the Buddha's teaching. There is no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like hunger of the heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. Health, contentment, and trust are your greatest possessions, and freedom your greatest joy. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. And that's what we're doing here. We're really living in the way of the Dhamma. Everything is supporting us in doing that. So just reorienting to those values that support your practice here. Well, I see I've only done the first of the um, (laughs) ten, so I'll just do one more perhaps. It's a short one. It's a beautiful one, though. The next one is, My very life is sustained through the gifts of others. 
Now we can really feel this on retreat because we're given so much, but I actually think it's somewhat true in our everyday lives too. Even though we very much live in an exchange culture where usually, you know, I give you money and you do something for me or give something to me, but all the ways in which it's much more than that. That people give us things through their generosity, through even the impeccability in which they do their jobs, so that we are given those services or goods that, that make our lives easy. But here on retreat, it's really obvious, isn't it? How we're really supported through the gifts of others, through the service of others. The managers and the cooks are here as a practice of generosity, they don't get paid. We'll talk more about this at the end, but they really do this work out of dana, out of generosity. And at the end of the retreat, there'll be the opportunity to reciprocate that generosity towards them. But they're here on faith. They're here as an act of service, as an act of generosity. And it really transforms the nature of the retreat to know that, that they're working here in that way. Um, that makes me appreciate them even more, their willingness to do this work and not know what compensation they might get for the work they do. And as well as the cooks and managers who just come here for the retreats, there's a whole crew of people at Spirit Rock. The housekeepers and the caretakers who live on the land and really help the retreat uh, go, uh, keep going. Most of them are on stipend, which means basically low pay. They get very little, just barely enough to live on, and they, they live here on the land. And really, again, do this work out of their love of the Dharma and being able to be here in this retreat atmosphere. And then all the admin staff that often as retreatants you have nothing to do with because they're down there toiling away in the cubicles, in the meadow and over at the barn. But they too are here because they love this practice and love to serve. You know, as a non-profit, we don't pay, you know, high salaries usually. It's, it's uh, people come and work here, and part of their work here is a gift that enables the retreats to happen. So you can really feel this when you're on retreat. The fact that we're sitting here in this hall, in these buildings, they're only here because people gave donations. Spirit Rock in, in the, this round of building had no, didn't have to take out a mortgage. It was all donated. So we really enjoy this beautiful retreat space because of the generosity of others, the gifts of others. So really to feel that as you spend your time here. As I've said already, we don't cook. Someone does our laundry. They, you know, the place gets clean. The light bulbs get changed. All of these things happen um, of course, we do our yogi job, so there's a way in which we each give each other the gift of that hour or so of labor a day, but whatever jobs you're not doing, someone is giving you that gift of cleaning your bathroom or vacuuming the floor, chopping the vegetables. So it's a very rich area for reflection, the fact that we're living here supported by the gifts and the generosity of others. And this is a very traditional relationship that the Buddha set up very deliberately between lay people and the ordained Sangha. When he set up the Vinaya, or the set of rules that monks and nuns uh, take when they ordain, he deliberately um, required that monks cannot store food nor grow food. 
they have to eat what they're given that day. They can't store it overnight so that every day they have to go out for what's called alms round with their bowl, smaller than this, but something <laughs> like this, um, the people in the local communities would put food into. And they would eat that food that would often be their one meal of the day, and then that was it. And the next day they'd have to go out again. And so this beautiful symbiotic relationship would develop between the monks and the lay people, where the lay people so appreciated the practice of the monks and the nuns and the teachings they were given that they would support the monasteries, support the monks through donations, through buildings, and through the food that they were given every day. And so this was very done very deliberately so that monks couldn't just go and hide off in the caves or the woods. They had to maintain this contact with the lay people. Uh, just a year ago, is it a year ago? Over a year ago, who was it? Guy went to Burma for um, a number of weeks to practice at this monastery with a very wonderful meditation teacher, actually teaches a concentration practice called Pauk Sayadaw. He went in the summer, the beginning of the monsoon, which in some ways was a very unwise decision. Um, but it's the rains retreat, as traditionally happens in Asia, where the monks and nuns come together for a period of intensive practice. And so he went for a period of time at this monastery and ordained as a monk while he was there. Before he went, one of his students offered his, him some money and said, I want you to take this money and give it to the monastery as an offering from me. So when he got there, he went to the monk who was in charge of these things and said, you know, I have this money from America. I'd like to offer it to buy lunch for all the monks and nuns at the monastery on one day. And I think at that time, because of the range retreat, there are hundreds of people there. It might be 600 people there. But he'd been given a few hundred dollars, and in Burma, a dollar goes a long way. It was enough money to buy lunch. And this monk said back to him, I'm sorry, every lunch has been spoken for for three months. And the Burmese are not wealthy people. Sure, some people probably came from overseas, um, other Buddhist countries to donate, but many of the donors were Burmese. And often when it was the Burmese family's day that they were offering the lunch, they would all come and they would stand there smiling behind the pots of food as people came and ate the food that they had provided that way, that day. And they'd have a big board up with saying, you know, today's lunch provided by the such and such family. And they would be so happy to do that and to support the practice in that way. It's just a beautiful tradition of both generosity and joy. They really got so much joy out of it. So we've begun this tradition here. You may have noticed the meal dana notices out there and down um, in the dining hall. And it, it, it just lifts your heart when you come in one day and it says, you know, today's lunch provided by so-and-so or provided it in honor of so-and-so. And to feel that sense that the food is really coming from the generosity of this person's heart. So it's a beautiful tradition that we've kept up here at Spirit Rock. So in appreciation of all of the gifts that we're given, what can we do? How can we acknowledge that? One of the things, simple things we do is dedicate the merit. The chant that we'll be doing every evening is that expression of the acknowledgement of the blessings of our life and our wish to pass that on to others, not to keep the benefit just for ourselves. 
Some of you may wish to do that at the end of sittings that you have, um, just to have that sense of um, sharing what you have with others to dedicate the merit, to really just look around and acknowledge all of the gifts that we receive in our lives, the gifts of friendship, of love, generosity, the gift of sangha, the support that we offer each other here, the gift of the Dhamma. And we've all been touched by that gift, by hearing the teachings. It's why we're here. One of the huge gifts we get here at Spirit Rock is just from nature, from the land, from the beauty, from the animals. And the way just going out and seeing a turkey or a squirrel or a lizard can lift your heart. It's a gift that we receive. And so we cultivate gratitude in response to this generosity that we're receiving all the time. And this quality of gratitude is such a beneficial one, so helpful. We often call it the fifth Brahma-vihara. You know, I think if we're going to add to that list, I'd add gratitude. Many of you spoke about it in the opening circle, being grateful for being here and the circumstances that allowed you to be here. Some people in interviews talked about it today. It's a beautiful quality as a support for your practice to feel the blessings, to feel the gifts, and to have that openness of heart that accepts them that allows the cycle of generosity to continue because it's very important that we're here to accept them. Um, But to really acknowledge that and let it open the heart and let let it develop this sense of interconnectedness that is the truth of things. We're here because of the generosity and the gifts of others and to appreciate that. So many people like to take up a gratitude practice. It can be very simple. Uh, Actually, a student at one of our classes mentioned this practice he did, and now we've talked about it to a number of people, and many people have taken it up, where he said he just has uh, one friend, and at the end of every day they made a commitment to email each other one thing that they were grateful for that day. And so they just have to make this commitment to think of one thing, And sometimes if you think of one, you can think of two or three. But even just thinking of one can kind of shift the energy, even if it's been a difficult day. So gratitude practice. Again, on that retreat that I mentioned that was a little difficult for me, I also took up a gratitude practice where every morning I started making a list and I got to about 20 things that I was really grateful for. And I would start my day at 4 a.m. or whatever time it was just reading and reflecting on this list. After a while, it was pretty easy. I could just memorize it. But take a moment with each one and just feel the blessings of that thing in my life, that that relationship, that being, that blessing. Just let that in and let that set the tone for the day. And then at the end of the day, as I lay down in my bed, head on the pillow, think of whatever, five things that I was grateful for that day. Often it would be the fact that my head was on the pillow. I was actually getting to lie down. Whatever it was, something simple. The sun was shining. The food was good. But it can really shift the energy to just bring this attitude of gratitude in. So, I think I'll wind up there having gone through two of these ten. We'll see how long this talk series lasts. 
I hope that you, you can take these sheets back with you to your rooms. Um, as I said, some of them are quite serious, and I, you know, we'll talk about them as we go through this teaching. Don't use this to beat yourself up or have some sense of judgment or that this is a, you know, everyone else is so serious and hardcore and I, I can't do this or this isn't for me. Really, I hope that you see that reflecting in this way can bring a lot of joy, can bring a lot of ease through these qualities that I've mentioned of contentment and simplicity and gratitude. They're beautiful qualities that will really support our practice here. So I hope that you appreciate the blessings that you have, that your heart is open, and that your practice bears fruit here. So thank you. And let's just sit for a moment. This talk was given by Sally Clow at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 5th, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed audience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.